Again, this is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21 to 31. Here now the reading of God's word. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning, loved ones. Well, people for generations after generations in different parts of the world have longed for a perfect city, a place of prosperity and peace. We long for something more than what we experience in our day-to-day life here in human society. And because of this, it's interesting to look at human history and cultures and see that there are many stories that are told in a variety of different cultures from around the world that speak of these kind of lost cities, like the city of Atlantis or the golden city El Dorado, or even uh, fantasy kind of stories in Lord of the Rings, Rivendell, or in movies like Wakanda. We have these images of these places that are kind of near-perfect societies preserved from all the evils around us. When the Bible, it tells us that we long for such a place because we were actually created for such a place. We were made to dwell with God in his holy abode, in his city, in his perfect place of peace. But when humanity sinned in the beginning, we lost that paradise. Paradise lost. And here the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking to the city of Zion, Jerusalem, again around the year 700 B.C., before Christ. And this was a historical city, a historical reminder of that paradise lost. Isaiah is saying that like Adam, in the beginning, lost paradise, so too the people of Israel were soon about to lose Zion, the city of the Lord. And that's what we'll consider today. First, the first point, the abasement of God's people. Secondly, the action of the Lord in response. And lastly, the 
aftermath of the refinement of God. So first, the abasement of humanity. Here, God, in the very beginning, he mourns over the abasement of his people in this city. The people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem upon Mount Zion there. Now, abasement, that's perhaps a strange word, but it is a fitting word for what happened with Israel at Zion. Abasement literally means to reduce in rank, to diminish in value or status, to lower oneself. And that's exactly what happened with Jerusalem. It was once the faithful city, Isaiah says. It was high in value and status in the world. He's referring to that brief period of time under the reign of King David and King Solomon when the city was, in fact, full of justice in a place where righteousness dwelt. It was this great city on a hill, a shining beacon of truth and justice for the world to see. It was a small slice of paradise in the midst of a dystopian world. But from that high point, that lofty place, nearly reaching the mountain peaks of majesty, the faithful city had fallen into the valley of vanity. Isaiah says here that God's beloved city fell so low that she became a harlot, a prostitute. Now, is God just here calling Israel a bad name? Is that what's happening? No, not at all. He's actually saying something about what was happening among them spiritually. He is not saying that they were prostituting their bodies. Let's pause and think about this. What is a prostitute? Skipping the physical side of things, it is a person who trades their dignity in exchange for something else. A prostitute is a person who exchanges their own dignity in exchange for something else. In the case of literal prostitutes in society, they trade the dignity of their body in exchange for what? For money. They say, take my body and give me money. But Isaiah isn't saying that the people of Israel were literally prostituting their bodies. He's speaking symbolically here. He's speaking of a symbolic or spiritual prostitution that happens when we trade our human dignity for some selfish gain. Think of gossip for an example. In gossip, what do we do? We share defaming information about another person behind their backs. And how is gossip a kind of spiritual prostitution? Well, when we gossip, what are we doing? We're trading the dignity of our word, the value and worth of our word, for the pleasure of sharing the misfortunes of someone else. We are essentially prostituting the value of our word. We say, take the value of my word and give me the satisfaction of the moment to feel superior to my neighbor. Gossip ruins the reputation of your neighbor, but it also runs your own reliability through the mud. It runs your word through the mud. Do you see how gossip, in this way, we're exchanging something. We're exchanging the value of our word for what? A rush of dopamine to the brain, a moment where we feel superior to ourselves where we talk about the problems of our neighbor. This is a kind of spiritual prostitution, taking the dignity of our word and exchanging that for some selfish gain. 
And we could do that to each and every sin. Every sin is a kind of spiritual prostitution. When we willfully sin, we are saying, take my dignity and give me some selfish gain for myself. Now, what examples of spiritual prostitution does Isaiah give us here in our text? Let's look at it. Look at verse 23. He says, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So here, according to Isaiah, what is it that they wanted? What did they want in exchange? Well, it says here that they wanted bribes and gifts. In other words, they wanted more money. What did they sell in order to get that? What dignity did they sell? Well, Isaiah tells us they sold their own righteousness. They put their righteousness on the table, willing to let it go for what? For money. How did this happen? What did it actually look like? Well, in day-to-day life, they turned a blind eye to the injustice around them done in society because what? They wanted a little extra cash on the side. They let others be mistreated, overlooked, and disrespected, and they acted like they didn't see it. They ignored the brokenness around them instead of doing what is right. Look again at verse 23 there. Isaiah says that they have become partners with thieves. That means they were willing to enter into business partnerships with thieves. They gained money from business deals that shorted and exploited other people. Now, why did they side with the rich despite their exploitive ways? Well, Isaiah told us already, because they wanted those bribes, those gifts. They wanted, in a sense, to curl up in a cushy security blanket of money. They said, so to speak, take my righteousness and give me money. Can you see what Isaiah is saying here? They were prostituting their own fidelity for financial gain. Like prostitutes, they sold their own dignity for some selfish gain in return, and they were guilty of it. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. Now, do you see how with this, Isaiah is leveling the playing field for us. According to this understanding of spiritual prostitution, it's not just Israel that is guilty. We are all guilty of this. In the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, he uses a similar metaphor to speak of Christians who whose hearts are too much in love with the world, the sins of the world. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, you adulterous people, you do not know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? We see that we too, even in the New Testament, the church is also guilty of this as well. And here at the root of spiritual prostitution we see is the desire for selfish gain. It is self-centered pride born out of what? A twisted love of self. That's our problem. Too much love for ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong here. By love of self, I do not mean the healthy kind of self-love that we should all cultivate and have. Self-love is arriving at the joy and contentment with who God made you to be and who you are in God's story. 
We all need to learn what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, where he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He was content with that. He was at peace with that. That's a kind of healthy self-love, loving who you are in God's big story. So that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a twisted love of self. Love of self is when you love yourself so much that you believe that you are at the center of the story, that you are at the center of the world, that you are at the center of the universe. And that kind of love for self is destructive. It is self-destructive as well. You know, this is what pulled the faithful city of Jerusalem down. They abased themselves with spiritual prostitution. It was motivated by their twisted love of self. And this is what gets every great civilization. This is why every great empire has fallen. Every human society of the world will fall apart because of this. Instead of loving others, we are in love too much with ourselves. Humans long for a city where the motto is, love yourself, you be you. That's the kind of city that sinfully we want. And it's exactly the opposite of the motto of God's city that he wants to build for us. That motto is love the other. First me, then your neighbor. I am that I am. You see, after the fall of Rome in the year 410, Augustine of Hippo, a philosopher, theologian, received news in, the de- in December of the year 410 of the fall of the great Roman Empire. And he responded with his great city of God, this great work of theology and philosophy. And he laid the blame of the fall of the Roman Empire at the feet of Rome itself. As Isaiah spoke to Jerusalem, Augustine spoke to fallen Rome and said, you have fallen because you have loved yourself too much. Augustine claims that our fatal flaw is in the foundation. It is in the heart. Instead of being ruled by love of God, we are ruled by love of ourselves. Love of self is the fatal flaw of every great civilization. It was the case for Jerusalem as well. Jerusalem, who used to be the city of righteousness. What about our communities today? What about us in our world? Well, sadly, we are no different. We are still poisoned with this twisted love of self, that pride, where we think we're at the center of the universe, and perhaps more than ever, this is tearing us apart. Instead of working together to build a kind of worldwide city of respect and dignity, it seems that Our society is pulling us further and further apart from one another. And instead of building something together, we build only for ourselves. We primarily invest in our own lives. We spend hours, think of this, we spend hours curating our own image on social media for others to see us. Just think of how many hours the average person spends today on social media curating their own image. You see, our society, our communities, our churches, our families, we are all in the middle of a pandemic of pride. Not just plagues and sicknesses that come, but also pride that is killing us. It's been killing us for a long time. We are dying by and from this twisted love of self where we all want to be at the center of the universe. 
This is how God's people in Jerusalem abase themselves, and this is how we abase ourselves as well. We were made, think of this, we were made by God to sit upon the mountaintops of God's creation, ruling with love for God and love for neighbor, but instead we are in the shadows, falling apart because we are ruled by love of self. In Isaiah's day, the golden days of, of Zion, they were long gone. They loved themselves so much that they forgot to love God and they forgot to love their neighbors. Isaiah was showing them that long before the Assyrians invaded, long before the Babylonians came to take them captive, they had already fallen into corruption by loving themselves. The intruding nations sacked Israel because Israel was already sacked by them, their own hearts that betrayed them. They couldn't just point the finger at the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It was their own fault for neglecting the other, first God and then their neighbors. Oh, how the mighty Zion had fallen. They abased themselves. And we see that their abasement led to the Lord's action in response. And that's our second point. Look at verse 24 to 26. Here, Isaiah, the prophet, tells us what the Lord their God would do in response to his abased people. We'll read it again. It says, Therefore the Lord, the Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Loved ones, this is striking here, what's before us. At first, it seems that the action plan of the Lord is detrimental to Israel and to God's people. Their friendship with the world has made them enemies and foes of God. And here he's promising at the beginning that he's going to avenge them himself against his enemies. He will turn his hand to judge them. It seems that they're done for. It seems that here they are, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But just when it seems like he's about to smite them down in his wrath, he saves them in his grace. We learn here that God's hand is turned against his own and their evil ways, but here is the amazing thing. That in vengeance, God's hand skillfully removes the sins of his own people without destroying them. He directs the heat of his anger and displeasure at our sinful impurities while preserving us. Christians, Isaiah is promising that instead of us entirely being consumed by fire, that God will purify us by fire, removing our dross, removing our impurities, but preserving us. That means that God is able to burn away all of your impurities, all of your sins, and still preserve you and present you as pure in him. God is the great refiner who knows how to remove your sin, all of it, without destroying you. But how can this be? We have abased ourselves in spiritual prostitution. We are guilty and we deserve to be consumed by the fire of his wrath and his justice. So what does this tell us about how God deals with his people? Well, no degree of abasement can prevent God from restoring his own people with his grace. In a commentary, Ray Ortland says here on this passage, he says, to his glory, 
to his glory no matter what we do. God just won't go away. He will never un-God himself. He won't go away. His love is relentless. You cannot totally abase yourself from God. You can abase yourself all you want. But if you belong to him by faith, you cannot disgrace yourself from God. You can try and run away from him, but you cannot outrun his grace. Why? Because by his grace, God is not scared of your sin. His gracious heart is not undone by your failures. His gracious name is not ashamed of your reputation. You can abase yourself all the way to the gates of hell, but even that would not be too far for God's grace to reach you. Christian, you can abase yourself, and by your sins, you have. But you can't disgrace yourself from his loving heart if you belong to him by faith. If you belong to Jesus, you may have, and you have, in fact, distanced yourself from God. He is saying to you this morning, again, I'm coming to get you. I'm not giving up on you. I will melt away your dross. I will remove your impurities. You have abased yourself, but I will restore you with my grace. See the action of the Lord, how he has responded, how he responds to our sinning. He turns his hand against his own, not to crush them, but to purify them and restore them in his grace. So God, in fact, he sends us into the refining fire. He does this in life. For us as Christians, when he sends us into fiery trials, difficult things that challenge us, in the New Testament, Peter tells us that these trials that we face in life, they come to us to prove the genuineness of our faith, or the greater, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it is refined by fire, so that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That means that the trials that God brings us in this life, they are in fact uncomfortable, and unpleasant, it's fire after all. It burns parts of us away, but the end result is refinement, purification of our character and our being, so that when Jesus returns, when we are restored, it will be to his praise, to his glory, and to his honor. This process of refinement will end with our greatest trial of all that we will all go through, death, None of us can avoid that great trial before us. But as Christians, as death puts an end to all our sins, there too God will find you, preserve your soul, and then present you as spotless and pure and blameless in Christ in the final day of resurrection. Earlier we saw how human society becomes corrupt by this twisted love of self. But here, in the action of the Lord, We see that he restores us by his love for the other, by his love for us. Nowhere is this restorative love of God, love for us, more evident than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Augustine said, unlike the city of man ruled by that love of self, the gospel proves to us that God is ruled by his love for the other, even at a sacrifice to himself. There on the cross, we see God himself willingly suffering as a true man in order to improve the life of others, to give us eternal life. God can be both pure 
and the purifier of the impure because Jesus took upon himself all our impurities, all our dross, and he died under the just punishment that we all deserve. The Son of God was consumed by the fire of God's wrath so that we might be refined by it and preserved through it. We see that God has fulfilled this great promise of Isaiah through the death of the Messiah. Jesus' blood was shed to spare your life and to purify you before God. Paul says in Titus 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people. And loved ones, Jesus' death has secured for us our restoration. And that brings us to our last point, the aftermath. After this refining work, after this fulfillment of promise, we learn about the ultimate restoration of God's people and God's city to come in the day of resurrection, the day of Christ's return. Look again at verses 26 to 27, where God says there, I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice and her penitent ones with righteousness. So here, we see the reversal of the abasement. Israel was abased, stooped way down low, lost all of her dignity. Zion, that faithful city, was committing spiritual prostitution. Nevertheless, God promises a full restoration here, restoring all her dignity. He says that the future restoration will be like the days of old, God's people will again be ruled by leaders such as King David and King Solomon. Zion will be delivered by justice, and she will again be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And loved ones, this promise is already true, but not fully fulfilled yet. There's an already but a not yet aspect to this promise and its fulfillment. What do I mean? Well, Jesus Christ, the son of David, he is that great leader and ruler as of the days of old who has been put in place and is ruling and reigning now after his resurrection. Peter says that Jesus is the first stone that has been laid in the rebuilding of Zion. He says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the primary stone upon which all others are built. So God was not only promising to restore the actual he was not promising to restore the actual geopolitical nation of Israel or that city itself. That's too small for God. That's not what he's promising. He was promising to restore Zion, the city of the Lord, that would encompass the entire world. Full paradise restored on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see in the full counsel of God's word that Zion here is referring, in fact, to the fullness of the kingdom of God here on earth. The full restoration is the kingdom of God coming to earth, the new creation to come. And even though we don't see this full restoration yet, it has already begun, and we are part of it. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read that when we come together and worship like we are now, and we worship in Jesus' name, he says we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That means that we have a real spiritual participation, even now, in the reality of this restoration through Christ by faith. But the full restoration is still not yet 
to come. It is to come when Christ returns on the day of resurrection. In John, in his revelation that he received from Jesus at the end, in verse, in verse 2 of chapter 21, he gives us a vision of that final day and that full restoration. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming down to earth, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So here, loved ones, picture this, imagine this. God's people, we, God's people, have become a spiritual whore. But on that day, we will be clothed in sacred splendor. That's what we have put before us in this great and glorious vision that God will restore Zion. God will restore his creation. He will restore you if you belong to him by faith. This is the perspective that we need. We live among the cities of this world that will crumble and fall, but we belong to what God is building, his eternal city. St. Augustine, again, he says this, God does not raise up citadels of stone and marble for us. He raises up citadels of the Holy Spirit for us, citadels of love, which could never collapse, which will forever stand in glory when this world has been reduced to ashes. Rome has collapsed, and your hearts are outraged by this. Rome was built by men like yourself. Since when did you believe that men had the power to build anything that is eternal? Your souls, filled with the light of the Holy Spirit, will not perish. You see, if you belong to Jesus by faith, you are part of what God is building by his Holy Spirit. And what God builds upon that cornerstone laid in Zion, Jesus Christ, what God builds will not perish. It is eternal. But this passage that we've read this morning, loved ones, does not end there, does it? There's still a little bit more. So we can't end there either. It ends with the warning. Look at verses 28 to 23. But rebels and sinners with both will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you've delighted, and you will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves and like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together and no one will quench the fire. So in brief, we hear from this, we see here that if you do not belong to Jesus by faith, if you are not built upon that cornerstone laid in Zion, Jesus Christ, you and all that you accomplish, no matter how great it is, you and all that you accomplish in this life will in the end burn up. If you continue in your ways, motivated and ruled by that twisted love of self, well, like Rome, like Jerusalem, and like every other great civilization, you and all that you are proud of will also be reduced to ash in the end. You do not have the power to build things that are eternal. And if you forsake the Lord your God, you too will perish. So come to Jesus now before it is too late. Abandon your twisted love of self. Take refuge in Jesus and his love. Take refuge in the King that God has appointed, the Son of David, the Son of God. In refuge with him, in him, you will be blessed with him. He will forgive you all your sins, and he will begin to refine you and prepare you for the full restoration of Zion. 
So here at the last, God is love. Remember, he has provided a Savior, and if you do not come to him, the fault will be yours. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge and admit before you that we are often ruled by love of self, this twisted version and vision of reality where we think we are at the center of the universe and all revolves around us, and we exchange our dignity for selfish gain. We admit that we have abased ourselves, that we have so fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned against you, we have not loved you, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourself. And yet, we are amazed and astonished by your amazing grace that you have lavished upon us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have done the work to restore us, to purify us, to refine us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would grant us more faith in Jesus, to trust in him, to take refuge in him, and find in him our hope for that lasting, eternal city, which is built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen. Loved ones, it's saying a song of application response to hearing God's word, 433, amazing grace, 433.